I'm going to be very simply about uh, what I consider to be very complex work. Today I'm just going to talk about a few ideas that I find particularly compelling. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. So just up even more. Okay. Um, some of the ideas that I find particularly compelling and um, how they challenge me as a family systems therapist. Uh, Mark, as you know, talking about, uh, presents this very comprehensive uh, discussion of multiple levels of human existence and then uh, beginning with the uh, subatomic and on the, this discussion of emergence uh, posits this idea of a transcendent level and then discusses systems dynamics and emergence and on uh, within systems, between systems and what are the conditions necessary for emergence and different types of emergence. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating read, you know. Um, for me, I'm a family systems therapist and as I was reading this, uh, what I began to realize is that I've been really kind of stuck on the psychological level and um, you know, I tend to deal with other levels. I mean, I'm aware, I think of myself as being holistic and I'm aware that people have biological needs and spiritual needs. But as a therapist, I tend to deal with those by referral, right? Which, of course, is fine, and I'll continue to do that. But what I began to realize was that, you know, I can, there's a lot more that I can do. I need to, so I've started researching, and particularly in the areas um, that I specialize in, which is, um, trauma addiction and mood disorders, and you know, getting um, more aware of what's going on for my clients on these other levels, and exploring uh, ways that perhaps I can facilitate emergence on, um, or facilitate healing on uh, uh, using these different levels. As I um, understand, you know, the, the idea, this kind of sort of simplified idea, this very complex um, discussion that I come away with is this idea that Mark takes the, the systems idea that um, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and that emergence is how that wholeness happens. And um, I want you to be easy to write it down with this. I might not have that right, but that's, that's my understanding of it. Um, and that the soul is this empty space or informed empty space, which is this kind of reservoir of all the possibilities, the actual possibilities, the things that, that any particular person could become. So, um, you know, Doug's reservoir or Kelly's reservoir is different than my reservoir, right? Um, for, for me, this, uh, this, uh, well, first of all, I think what um, this is a great tool for in this very discussion because it's a way of talking about the soul that is, you know, that is compatible with science and compatible with theology, and it resonates with my clinical experience. Um, but I also think there's some really interesting implications. Uh, I think of healing as an emergent process. Uh, emergence is we actualize a real possibility which opens us up to more real possibilities, and that's healing. Illness or pathology uh, diminishes our real possibilities, right? Um, from a spiritual perspective, spiritual growth opens us up to real possibilities uh, on up to the, a transcendent level, right? Um, 
whereas sin or, uh, diminishes uh, our real possibilities. So I found myself asking, um, so what's the difference? Is this the same process? Uh, if it's the same process, what does that mean? Does that mean that healing on a biological level is spiritual growth on a biological level? And for me, that's a compelling idea, an interesting idea, um, particularly because I work in Western healthcare. And uh, Western healthcare is really compartmentalized. You've got the mind over here, you've got the body over here, we don't have a soul. Um, and, it's very, and this is a problem that people in healthcare have been aware of and talking about and trying to resolve. And I think this is a tool or a way of thinking uh, about healing that is uh, more um, holistic, um, that, uh, that helps us think about spirituality and healing at the same time. And maybe that would be useful and helpful. Um, thinking in terms of my own discipline, um, we talk about the mind, we talk about behavior, uh, some of us talk about the body and that's very you know, cutting edge stuff. Um, we never talk about the soul. I mean, some of us, like me, we come to theology classes at GTU and uh, we talk about the soul there, but I don't go to my conferences and talk to my colleagues about the soul. I mean, maybe I will now, uh, but I haven't been. Uh, so I was thinking about this and thinking, well, does that really matter? So what? Um, certainly it's good for interdisciplinary discussion, but what about, um, what, what does that mean for my discipline? Um, in, in my discipline, my level. Um, I think what happens here, Doug, I, I think, um, talked about this, this uh, growing interest in healthcare and spirituality, and I certainly see that um, among therapists. What tends to happen is that you talk about spirituality in the language that you're familiar with. This means that spirituality becomes a subset of the mind, or it becomes a subset of behavior. So as a subset of the mind, spirituality is uh, you know, a, some sort of mental process. So as a subset of behavior, it's uh, a coping mechanism. And um, I mean, this is uh, reductive. Um, it can be kind of patronizing. Uh, but as I was thinking about what Mark's discussion of levels and, and emergence and this good stuff, um, what I realized was that the really big problem, I think, is that um, it's not the language our clients use. You know, uh, Doug presented some, some wonderful examples of how people talk about spiritual experience. It's very common uh, for clients to come into me and describe their spiritual experience. Uh, if they, you know, talk about dreams that they've had, or they'll, they'll talk about experiences that they've had, or sometimes they'll just talk in this kind of vague, yearning kind of way about a desire for something more, and, and they'll come in and say, I don't know why I've never been a religious person, but I've just been thinking about maybe I'd like to learn how to pray. And people do this all the time. Um, if I'm talking as a therapist on a psychological level about spirituality, and people are coming in, my clients are coming in, and they're talking on a transcendent level, and you think about the idea of emergence, and emergence is a relational process, and ideally the therapeutic relationship facilitates emergence, how do you do that with this kind of disconnect? Um, one of the um, ideas that, um, you know, in the discussion of emergence, I was 
that, that uh, Mark presents. I'm radiant with this. Um, while that's really interesting, now what do I do with it? You know, what can I use? Because Mark goes through, these are the conditions you need for emergence to take place, the time of emergence, et cetera. And I'm kind of looking at this and saying, okay, what can I, you know, what can I use? Um, one of the ideas that, um, that Marx presents that um, stood out for me is this idea of constraints, that um, for emergence to take place, there has to be constraints, there's different types of constraint or constraining relationships. And what you need is a constraint that makes a difference. Um, and that this is informational. Now that's, you know, that's something I could kind of understand on an intellectual level, but I found myself uh, wondering what it meant uh, in terms of actual clinical practice. So what I started doing was, uh, what, what, what was stimulated in me was, was thinking about the tools I use to facilitate emergence. And I think the, one of the reasons why this is an interesting discussion for therapists is because um, we do a lot of things as, as therapists. You, know, you join with people, you educate people, but the most difficult thing to do is to facilitate change, real change. What people tend to do is they do the same old thing in a brand new way. So you, know, you substitute one fiction for another fiction, or uh, you're laughing at this experience. <laughs> Anybody in healthcare has this experience. Um, you, you, know, you grew up in an abusive home, and so that you marry an abusive spouse. So this is, you know, this is not emergence, this is not healing, but it's, it's what we do, it's what we all do. Um, so I found myself thinking about, you know, as a therapist, you, you're kind of a handyman, you've got these tools that you use, you, sometimes you don't why they work, sometimes you don't, but you get your favorite tools, right, over the years, because certain things are gonna work in this situation. So I was thinking, well, what are my favorite tools to facilitate emergence? Well, that, for me, this would be unbalancing, which comes out of family systems theory, uh, dream work, uh, dual awareness, which is a technique that's used with um, dis people who are disassociative, um, breath work. Um, lately, I've gotten into uh, coherence technique, which is a heart rate variability feedback technique. I've gotten into that because I've been paying more attention to the biological level. Um, and active listening, actually, which comes out of communication theory. Aside from the fact that all these dynamic techniques really work, they have very little in common. Right? They, they come out of different theories, they, um, they're designed to, um, uh, to address different issues, different problems, um, but they all constrain and they all, uh, are, they, they all create constrained relationships which make a difference. They all do what he's talking about. Um, so this has been, uh, that was kind of an aha moment for me as a man, huh? It's important as a therapist to understand why something works. And, and a technique can work for multiple reasons, but if you can zero in, if you've got 10 techniques, and this is a piece of all, of all those techniques that work, then the, you, you know, that's important. Um, and what it means is that I can, um, in my practice, I can start emphasizing or really uh, using or emphasizing that aspect of the technique, but it also means that I can start creating new interventions that are maybe better for um, certain situations or certain people. Um, so that's part of what was stimulated to me. Um, so um, thinking about how this translates into clinical practice, what I've been doing is, uh, a little bit, I have a, a real concern 
um, with what uh, Bessel van der Kolk is called the tyranny of the verbal in our culture. And um, what I'm talking about specifically in terms of therapy and education, I appreciate the meaning of education that's very important. Um, still, talk therapy tends to dominate in therapy. And our educational system is very little. And um, it's becoming more so as everybody uh, teaches to the test, and uh, we don't have money or done important things like music and art. And, uh, for, and I, I love the verb. My first master's was in, in English, actually. But for the people I work with, this is a disaster uh, for biological reasons. Um, people with traumatized people and a lot of special needs kids can't do verbal. And there are biological reasons why they can't do verbal. If you're going to deal with trauma, you have to deal with the limbic system. You have to deal with the body. Um, and so what happens is these kids come into therapy and they don't get their needs met, or they're not just kids, it's adults too. Um, they go to the school system and they find out that they're failures. Now, a lot of these kids, can, they can do art. They can do music. Um, they can do sensate, do logistic. They can do verbal, or at least not very well. Uh, so I think this is a serious problem. What I've been doing is um, developing nonverbal techniques that can be used by therapists and by educators um, that um, pay attention to multiple levels and what's going on uh, on these different levels for the people that I'm targeting. Um, and, uh, and consciously, um, I have to come up with a better word for this, <laughs> but you're consciously using techniques that, that provide this constraint that makes a difference. Um, so I don't think we're going to work with that. But um, so to give you a, a, a little snapshot of, of what this might look like in practice, um, I have one uh, intervention that I've um, started, that I've developed and started using, which is I call it a dream mandala. And this is basically dream work. I've learned uh, a lot, Kelly. Um, so I, I draw on that. Uh, so dream work and mandala. And art therapy meets uh, the limbic system, basically, what's going on with that intervention. The other thing that I've been working on is integrating some of these, um, uh, some of these uh, therapeutic techniques that facilitate uh, emergence uh, and healing um, with music education, so that music educators can go into the school system and not only teach music, but teach music in a way that um, it helps traumatized kids um, uh, heal on a biological level and, and helps other kids develop skills that would be preventative um, in terms of you know, their, their experiences, uh, in terms of having stress, all sorts of things. So that's a bigger project. I've got um, some wonderful people at Women's University, Kodai um, Institute there, and a number of Kodai educators that are interested in working with me on this. It's a bigger project, so what I um, needed to do, um, was wanted to do, was to kind of come up with a small, manageable piece that I could, um, something little that I, that, that I knew I could do. Um, so what, what we've done is my brother and I, my brother and I are both harpists, and um, he's also a harp builder. Um, and we both come from contemplative backgrounds, actually. He's a, he's a Buddhist who's been practicing Brima for many years. I've done a little Brima with him. Uh, I'm a Benedictine oblate, so I have that, I can, that contemplative tradition. So what we've done is we've come together and with our musical 
skills and uh, understanding and our contemplative experience and are using some of these techniques that, you know, like breath work and coherence technique and dual awareness, these kinds of techniques, and integrating them into a musical method uh, and teaching hearts. So it's like a, you know, six-week course or a workshop and people get a little heart that they can take home with them that, for the price of the class or whatever, that, um, that they can continue working on uh, development skills, both musically and therapeutically. Um, so anyway, we're going to be workshopping that actually in a few weeks. Um, we're going to be measuring heart rate variability to see if this increases heart rate variability and how, how this affects the biological system. So if anybody's interested in helping us work out that, let me know. Um, so as soon as Chris finishes the harvest, we'll be doing that. Anyway, that I hope gives just a, uh, a brief sketch of, of some of the things that I'm working with, but uh, I think, I hope, gives an idea of some of the ways in which the, the thinking that Marcus presented in this book can get translated into clinical practice.